Will you turn to Psalm 119? And I already know what you're thinking. Yes, we're going to cover... No, just kidding. 176 verses. How about that? 176 verses in Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible. Almost in the middle of our Bibles. But not exactly. But Psalm 119 is a wisdom psalm. And if you've been following with us this, just a short series this summer, really July and a little bit of August, we've taken a break from 1 Corinthians, of which we'll be back in next week. Uh, we've been, we've took, taken a break from the book of 1 Corinthians to do these psalms. And Michael has taught on just about every type of psalm. And last week he did Psalm 1, a wisdom psalm. This week we do another wisdom psalm. Really, the, the chief of the Psalms, and it's all about God's Word. A word on God's Word. It's definitely the longest chapter, and I think it's fitting that the longest chapter is on the Word of God itself in, in the Bible. But I wanted to, to just go over a few things on structure and, and style here before we really get rolling into what the contents are of Psalm 119. I think it would be helpful to understand Hebraic structure and style. And I think Michael went over this last week, but they did not have access. I, I wonder how many Bibles we have here this morning. We could do a, a we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's all the pew Bibles, right? And then you probably brought your own copy and you might have your own copy, hard copy, and have one in your pocket or on your phone next to you, which you could download, I don't know, how many apps of the Bible itself, uh, different versions of the Bible, at least in English, I'm thinking. And so, I don't know, there's a few hundred Bibles within grasp this morning. But in the Hebrew culture, as, as Michael went over last week, you have massive scrolls that take up a lot of room, right? And they don't, they don't fit in backpacks. <laughs> they cannot be downloaded. Every line has to be perfect. When the scribes wrote, these, wrote copy to copy, the priests had to sign off that this copy was the exact version of the version given from God to Moses and then it can be authenticated. And it was a laborious process that took weeks, months, even years to translate an entire copy of God's law. And that wasn't even the whole thing at that time. It was increasing as, as Revelation progressed, but even the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the law could not be carried around. So it was precious to be able to examine those words and that, that the, the care of that was in with the, with the scribes and the priests. And so when you did get to read God's word, you would be trying to take up God's word into your heart, right? So when you walked away from that scroll and you rolled that scroll back up or the Serve it, the, the service, even in, let's say, let's fast forward a few thousand years, even in synagogue, that scroll was rolled up and put away. You don't, that you're, you want to walk out of there with God's word on your heart, right? Not tucked away and left in a synagogue or with the priest. So the word of God is always precious, but even you can, you can even see it back then how copies did not exist very much. So the style and the structure was at times, specifically in Psalm 119, aimed for these words to hang in your memory and not just be read and then ignored for the rest of time. So I want to show you something just really quick on, on some slides here, that the structure of Psalm 119, you can see it most, even on our English versions, we can see these words, Aleph, right? One through eight, Beth or Bet, and then Gimel, right? So these are the ABCs of the Hebrew 
alphabet. And look up here. Not to get too fancy in the Hebrew this morning, but you can certainly see that that's something you cannot read, right? I don't, I don't think we can read that very well. And just a little secret, Hebrew is read from right to left. Interesting, huh? So we start over here and see how even if you don't know what that is, you can identify that that character on the far right-hand column is all the same, right? In one through eight, that's the Hebrew letter Aleph. That's our, that's our English A, okay? So then when we get to verse 9, it changes to Beth. So eight verses on Aleph, that's stanza one. Then we have the stanza with Beth. And then go ahead and advance the slide. Then we, you see Beth. And then verse 17, Gimel. And then we're going to have eight verses that start with that. Now, you can already see that that would help you remember these lines if you thought, okay, what's that? What's verse 16? Oh, 16 starts with, and you could, you, that would hang in your memory eat more easily than just 176 verses on God's Word. Go ahead to the next slide. You can see it up close in case this is for those in the back. So you can see the difference between verses 7 and 8, and then it jumps to different letter of the alphabet in verses 9 and 10. That's the difference between just the first, first and second stanza. And that repeats over and over and over for 22 characters of the Hebrew alphabet all the way to their Z, which is not Z, but don't worry about it. It's Tav at the end. And all those things are started with the same letter and then another eight and another eight and another eight. And the psalmist decides that's the way this psalm about God's word is going to be structured so that it might be more easily retained in the memory. And this Hebraic style, you'll notice in Psalm 119, is not linear like we often think in Greek linear thought. Western culture thinks one and then two and then three and then four and then five, right? That's not exactly how Hebrew thought works. <clears throat> Hebrew thought works in more of a stitch or a, or a circular, I'll, I'll call, I don't know what this thing is on the hem of a garment, what type of stitch that is. I'm just going to do this, okay? But that's the idea is it, is it starts the thought, but it's not just one and then two, like in linear thought. It's this curve that comes back onto itself and then hooks the idea and then comes again and then comes again. And you are moving forward, but you're seeing a lot of repetition. And that's what you see in Psalm 119 is more of this circular walking around an idea or concept. Why? Because even right now, we could take this pulpit, for example. You're seeing a different angle than I'm seeing. And if you come over on this side, we can see that we see the 3D nature of God's Word by walking around it rather than just saying, oh, there's, there's God's Word in 2D and it, or even one-dimensional at times. But in circling God's Word, we get to see the different facets of it and really to exhaust the beauty of God's Word. And in the repetition, watch this carefully, repetition does not equal just uh, some kind of boredom or he, he was out of things to say. So he just had to say the same thing again in, in being unoriginal. It's not synonymous with unoriginal. What repetition does is it actually magnifies the worth of the object. And this might be, I know I'm on thin ice here, but the way women might describe a situation versus a man, okay? In talking about more details, sometimes men just, and I'm painting with absolutely dangerously broad strokes here, but sometimes you just want the, the, few, the few facts, right? But that life just isn't in everything being reduced, is it? You need the expanded, the exhausted version. You need fuller details. And I don't think that's a compliment to guys at times where we just want 
something small and we miss things. Again, speaking in generalities. But here the author is taking his time to circle God's Word and to show us all these different angles on it. To magnify the worth of God's Word rather than to quickly reduce it and explain it in just a few and move on. So but why is this poetic style used? Why is, the, why is the poetry used here to describe God's Word? Remember that the Psalms are prayers. Psalms are prayers. They're prayer songs, really, is what the Psalms are. So this is a lengthy prayer song about God's Word. And he is the, the interest in God's Word, interest in any object, will beget memorization of that object. If you're into something, you think about it, and you talk about it, and you remember it, and you, want, you don't want less detail, you want more detail, and you want those drop-down menus expanded in your mind, if you will. You don't want everything truncated, so it's just one flat piece of information. You want it pulled apart and expanded, and you want to walk into that and explore every detail, every path, every corridor that can be understood and that's what this that's what occurs here in this psalm. And so really with the psalmist estimation of the ultimate value of God's word and the way he writes the structure and style is so that there's this constant rumination on God's word. I think Michael went into the word meditation last week. And that's the idea is that the word of God would stick that the Word of God would stick not just to pages, right, but to our eternal souls and our hearts so that it might shape us in everything we do. And you think about even this morning. So we have hundreds of copies of God's Word this morning. Why memorize in 2023? Why memorize when you can just... Most of us are not too separated from our phones, almost 24-7. Can't we just say, hey, Siri, um, how do I navigate this relationship? <laughs> Can we do that? Or, hey, Siri, tell me how I might worship my God. Or chat GPT or whatever that, that thing is. Like, hey, what it, how, do, how should I think about the Trinity? You know, or whatever it is. Why memorize... Why should the modern saint memorize? Why should we take things up into our heart, almost in an old school fashion, if you will, and memorize God's Word? I think we, we do know a lot of the answers to this. We know that Google search is, does just not cut it when it comes to the real things of life, does it? Because life is more than facts. Life is more than opinion on the internet. Life is dynamic, and life is changing. Life is moving. Life is beyond what we even see. And ChatGPT cannot assess. I don't even know how to say that, but the, the unseen and the eternal that God's Word can. Because life is full of action. You, you know how it works. You know how memory works already if you've memorized something, right? If you, if you are really into baseball stats, and I don't know who that might be this morning, but I, I, I do know a few people that are into baseball stats. You're able to tell me, I don't know, how many home runs, don't judge me, um, Roger Maris? hit to set the record and was broken by <laughs> that guy. I don't know. Okay. So you know how many home runs he hit or what his batting his lifetime batting average was of Mickey Mantle. Some people know that number. It's 300 something. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm in the ballpark, but it's like some people know how many touchdowns Tom Brady threw in his career. Why? Because you care about how many touchdowns Tom Brady threw. So that number, and it's somewhere in the thousands, it might be tens of thousands. No, it's not that many. That's yards. 
Uh, but there's so many hundreds of touchdowns that Tom Brady threw. Why do you care? I don't know why you care, but it sticks with you because you care. That's the point. And so when God's word that reveals his nature comes into our thoughts, it deepens our understanding of who our creator is. We know that inherently. But it also, you'll see in this psalm, it, I'll just read some, it sweetens our speech. And does our speech matter? Absolutely. But I can't, I can't ask Siri to adjust my speech or the level of my patience in the middle of some kind of relational moment, can I? Siri's not going to help me do that. It might tell me some kind of answer, or Google might give me some kind of answer, but it, it's not coming from within my heart. But God's Word can sweeten my speech, produce joy. God's Word can affect my outlook on life. God's Word can protect me against sin. Google can't do that, right? A quick word search cannot do that. It changes my thoughts. It changes my affections. It gives me wisdom in the moment when I need it, not after the fact that the moment has already passed. So the Word does this. The Word is everything. And the Word, the, the psalmist here wants the Word to be so much a part of his soul, his heart, that he is ready at a moment's notice. It really captures the, the love that you see for the Word and what the Word does in Psalm 19. We already looked at Psalm 1 last week. Um, but this is what the Word does. And I want to read a few of the verses in sequence, and you'll start to see the repetition. And, but we also see these, different, these eight different words that are used uh, of describing God's Word. So let's read 1 through 16, and I think that will give us a snapshot of what... He's talking. I actually think we're going to read through 24. 1 through 24. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors." You can get the sense, really, of almost the entire psalm if we're just to keep reading a few more verses. Not that everything is said in those verses, otherwise there wouldn't be the rest of the psalm. But you begin to see this repetition and this, 
this kind of multifaceted aspect of magnifying the word, which I've titled this morning, The Heartbeat of Wisdom, is to not only to love God's word, but it's to live God's word. And I want us to see these eight terms. We're not going to go a deep dive into them. We're just going to say what they are so you understand maybe the different angles of God's word uh, to describe his word. First of all, the law. We saw that in verse one, who walk in the law or the Torah of God's word. That's what that word means. It's used 25 times more than any other word to describe the word. The word law is used. And this simply speaks of God's revelation of himself. He is the source of, he's the genesis. He's the beginning of truth. That's what this means is God has revealed himself. It can be used for, yes, the first five books of the Old Testament. You can, as you think of the law, yes, sometimes we think of it as Genesis through Deuteronomy, but it can also be used of the entire canon of this is God's law. It's his revelation to us. The second is testimonies used 23 times, simply meaning to witness or to testify, hence testimony, right? It is God's standard. It's saying, like the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember what the Ark of the Covenant served as, and remember what was in the Ark, the law was in the Ark, at least the Ten, the, the ten Commandments were in the Ark, that served as a witness and testimony in Israel. That was a reminder. It was established as a reference. The third term is precepts. Precepts used 21 times, and this is where it really is a word that's talking about the details of the testimony, almost like the line by line. If the law is big umbrella, testimonies might be just about God establishing himself as a reference or the law as a reference. The precepts would be the specifics and details of that testimony that are designed really to shepherd. It's also used as a term for overseeing and shepherding, as a term to oversee and shepherd the saint into God's will, the precepts. Then there's the statutes, or sometimes translated decrees, 21 times. And this refers to the permanency of God's word, that God's word is fixed and it's, it's going nowhere. It's chiseled on stone. It's given to Moses, and he, he puts it into stone. But at the same time, God's word is fixed forever and is eternal. The fifth word is commandments. And this speaks of, you can hear it in the word itself, this speaks of God's inherent right to give the commands, to, to really order things. God has the authority inherently to do so. And then judgments. I love this word. Also translated as rules or ordinances. Used 23 times. It shows that God is the ultimate decision maker. That's, that's the nuance of this word. The, the angle that you're seeing of God and of his word with the word judgments is you're saying that the way God decides that things should go is right and it's good. That's what an ordinance is. He ordains it. God has ordained what will happen, his all-wise decisions to accomplish his will. And then the last two words are simply word, to describe the word, right? Your word gives me life. Um, and it's just a general term to describe God's truth in any form. And the last one is just like it, which is promise. So it's really describing God's word in the form of like according to God's word what, or according to your promise. So God, fulfill what you've already said is, is the idea. Now, I don't know why he chose eight. It is interesting that there's eight lines per stanza and there's eight words in Hebrew that are emphasized. Maybe that's uh, intentional, it seems to be. There's other words, but those are the chief eight used a minimum of 19 and up to 25 times. So I want to move through those quickly because you're going to see them over and over and over. And you're like, what's a precept? What's a testimony? What's a statute? What's the difference? They're, they're only separated by a, a little variance of degrees, but they all say something just a little bit different of God's word. All right, that's a huge intro. And I want to get into these themes 
that you're going to see over and over as the psalmist describes really a heartbeat of wisdom, which is to love God's word and to live God's word. First of all, it's this, and you see it just in about every line. It's passionate evaluation of God's word. Passionate evaluation or estimation of God's word. You can't, you can't even read a few lines and, and, and not see this. That the psalmist immediately, you can say, see that he is absolutely in love with God in his word because of words like delight in. He, he, he values it. If you're going to say, I will obey something, that inherently says how much you lean on that or you value it. And that's in every stanza for sure. And just about every other line, you see this convictional assessment of what God's word really is. And I think there's some application for us this morning. And I hope that you're seeing this application maybe churned up all throughout this morning is that when you see the psalmist say something about God's word, there's in it this, I agree with that. And at the same time, you're like, oh, like, I wish I could agree with that more. Like, I wish that was more of how I truly felt of God's word every moment, every day. So it's there for me, but I want more. And you see, he describes it in terms of it's eternal, it's fixed, but I want us to see this. I want us to see a specific of the way he looks at it. We already read this in verse 14, that he delights in it as much as in all riches. Will you go over to verse 72? Now, I, I would just ask, you flip at your own capability this morning. <laughs> we're going to flip a few times because it's thematic, and, and we're going to look at a couple of different uh, verses and then have to go back. So keep your finger in those five or six pages that this chapter takes up. But in verse 72, this exposes his value system. That Look at verse 72. The law of your mouth, this is a key phrase, is better to me. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Look over at verse 103. 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then lastly, in verse 127, of course, there's more, but I want us to see this value judgment. Verse 127, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. That's important because... It shows you his value system, but he's not just saying, hey, your word is this. He does say that in certain places. But in verse 72 specifically, he makes it personal because he's saying that the law of your mouth is better to me. In my, not that he is the judge of the word, but he's showing you this is how much I value this. And when you value something, you will obey it. And that's what he says multiple times. I will obey. I have chosen thy precepts. I make haste to keep it. You can see this, this, this passionate value that outweighs all other competitors for his attention. He keeps it because he values it. And this, this treasure is seen everywhere. I can't, I, we can't take all the time to look at it this morning, but since we're, we're close to this verse, why don't we look at 129? Verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. There it is, a passionate evaluation and estimation of God's word. It's replete through the entire psalm. Every few verses, he's saying something about the value of God's word. And I think this might encapsulate it almost the best if you go to verse 97, and we'll stick with that just 
as we conclude this point. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. And what do you do with the things that you love? The second part, it is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. And you could almost put so that, or then the result is, it's my meditation all the day. And you see this, again, all throughout the psalm. And Michael, again, in Psalm 1, talks about his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he what? He meditates day and night. Day and night. You can see his love and his passionate estimation of God's Word. And I think this this begs the question, maybe not ask the question, hey, how much do you love God's Word? But look at your habits or, or look at the way you interact with God's Word. Just let that be the testimony. How much do we love God's Word? How much does it say about our love for God's Word in the way we treat God's Word? What, is, what does it say about where our treasure is in how we talk about it, what our thoughts are about God's Word? And if we could even say with the psalmist, it's my meditation all the day. Again, there's convictional statements throughout, or I should say convicting statements throughout as we look at his passion for God's Word. And the second one is this, and you're going to see this everywhere. So I think it would be good to just lock into a stanza or two just to see this one. And that is, he, there's a desperate dis- dependency upon God in His Word throughout. He values God's Word, and it immediately leads to this desperate dependency upon God in His Word. And this is, this is right at the heart of what we need to to examine ourselves this morning as we see his humble requests over and over and over for God to to work in his heart through his word. And this is what was really astounding to me is he takes nothing for granted. The psalmist takes nothing for granted. He doesn't say, I love your word, so I'll just live it. Or... I, don't, I love your words, so I can expect to be fine. I'm, th- that would be a very weird prayer. Um, but he doesn't just then go do his own thing. He loves and he values God's word. And then he asks God <laughs> that he would value God's word, that he would keep his commandment close. So the requests are all over in this psalm. Will you turn back with me to... Stanza number five, verse 33. This stanza probably has more requests than any other one stanza, so I thought it would be helpful to just look at it specifically. And you, you can see what he's asking for. He asks all over the, the psalm that God would actually hear him, that his cry would come to him, that God would hear his plea but look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. What a verse. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. There's a whole sermon right there. Verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good and this is an incredibly sweet verse that really is the gospel right here in Psalm 119. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. In your righteousness, give me life. 
Look at all those requests from the psalmist, just constantly dependent upon the Lord in so many ways for understanding, for guidance, for deliverance, for protection, for strength, for life itself. Multiple times. It's the, the, the top two requests. Let me give you this little fact of Psalm 119. The top two requests are that the, is that the psalmist would understand and the second one would be specifically that life or revival would be found in his word. And this is, this is a sweet little uh, aspect of understanding as well. Look back up at verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. And then down in verse 34, give me understanding that I may that I may keep your law. So the psalmist uses two different words, not only two different words, but for understanding, he talks about God, give me understanding as I look at your word, as I peer into your word, help me understand what you're telling, help me to, dis- to discern your word is really the, 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 the request. Then in verse 34, he's saying, give me understanding that I might keep it. So as I look at your word, give me understanding. And as I go away from your word, God, give me understanding that I might keep what I just read, what I just meditated on. Those are two specific requests that you can just see pretty closely here in these two stanzas. But the request for life is just everywhere. He truly captures what Deuteronomy 8.3 commanded the Israelites. Do you remember that? Where they've gone through the wilderness, they're at the Jordan River, it's a re-giving of the law, and Moses is speaking to them, and you'll, you'll recognize these words. He says that the Lord has humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That verse was quoted by Jesus, right? In the moment of temptation. That we understand, don't we? We all like food. We all certainly have been eating food for some time now in order to exist today, right? There's hardly a day in your life that you've gone without food. Even if you fasted, that's going to be such a small percentage of your entire life. You you don't often discipline yourself to eat food, right? You You don't set timers, maybe some of you do, to to drink water, when do you drink water normally? When, is a, when do you typically, a, a human, when do they drink water? When they are thirsty, right? We don't, we don't need a lot of accountability on those kinds of things. Hey, drink your water today. Although some people, that's been pretty in fashion lately, you know? Um, water's been really big for the last 10 years. And uh, I mean, it always has been big, right? But it's getting bigger. It's like healthy waters and I am kind of a water snob, but I, I am not like, I don't have my like measuring stick of how much water I'm drinking. I know I'm supposed to drink like 80 ounces or whatever I'm supposed to, supposed to drink for someone my size or whatever the ratio is, but water is often not a discipline for the, for the human. You drink it because you know you need it and you're thirsty. That's why we do it. And that's the idea here is that he really understands that man, there's more to life than man living by just bread. You could say, and water. That life is dependent upon God himself and specifically through his word with the activity of the Holy Spirit working in your unseen soul. We have to come back to that so many times. We can get consumed by all kinds of things or just divert our attention into all kinds of areas that aren't always bad, 
Sometimes they're, 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 they're very good things. They're just not the Word. And this is where he knows life exists, is in God's Word itself. That, but in this, this righteousness that only he can deliver. He's not just, this is not just do-goodism. This is just not scripture, wrote scripture memory for the psalmist. He's saying, God, in your righteousness, there it is in verse 40, we just read it, in your righteousness, give me life. I think of that verse in John 15, 5, where Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room that if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit, right? And apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the psalmist, knowing that, you could say, ahead of his time, is doing everything he can to hang on to God's Word and look there for life. An absolute, desperate dependency on the Word. Third, you see this theme all throughout, and that is his anchored devotion. Yeah, that's in your notes as well. His anchored devotion. This was kind of hard for me to capture, but I, I finally landed on this phrase because you see his devotion to God's Word, clearly. It's all about God's Word. But there's all these little um, highlights of God's character sprinkled throughout the psalm. God's righteousness, God's mercy. Ultimately, you'll, I'll just give you this, this verse, Psalm one, or, uh, verse 159. He's banking on God's steadfast love. That's a familiar phrase to us. The psalmist is banking on God's steadfast love. But here's the, what I want to highlight in his anchored devotion. You and I know this full well. It is easier, I'm assuming some things here this morning, it is easier to focus on God when times are easy, kind of, right? And we go through affliction or we go through suffering, and we don't like that right? Hebrews 12 says, nobody enjoys suffering in the moment, but afterward it produces righteousness. And the psalmist clearly gets that. Multiple times does he say, starting in verse 23, will you go to verse 23 with me? And this theme is developed. Ah, I wouldn't say developed. I would say it's repeated and given different angles throughout. Verse 23 perhaps one of the most difficult things to ever do, even though princes sit plotting against me, what do I do? Your servant will meditate on your statutes. Sometimes you look at that and you're saying, that doesn't even connect. That, that hardly, that, that isn't like, what? Like, people are plotting against him, yet where is my mind going to be? It's not on worry. It's not on manipulation. It's not on defense. It's not on trying to stop the princes from plotting against me. But I want us to look at this in 65. Look over in verse 65. I'm sorry, verse 67. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. It, it just keeps going and going and going. Really, the whole stanza from 81 to 88, the letter is Kaf. Look there. He's talking about how he's become a wineskin in the smoke. He's, he's beat down. He's worn out. He's he's dry and cracked, if you will, but he's not forgotten his statutes. Verse 85, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And here's his request again. In your steadfast love, give me life that I might keep your, the testimonies of your mouth. Isn't that good for us to hear? Even though there are things against, there's suffering and affliction, 
Where is the psalmist's mind? Where is his dedication? Where is his meditation? It's not on those things. That, that struck me. That, those verses are circled in my psalm. Because it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? When something is contrary to you, yourself, or whatever it is, maybe there's actually outright attacks, it's easy to get caught up in the affliction rather than to say, no, I know that affliction is there, but my, that's not going to drag me away to be consumed by it and then really use that as my platform, my new platform for life. I'm not going to make every decision based off of this false platform of affliction and suffering over here. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge that it exists, but my mind is going to be meditating on God's word. He'll choose to listen to God, won't he? Rather than fixate on the noise. He'll choose to listen to God more. He'll, he'll not loosen his grip. He, that grip tightens amidst uh, the affliction. Lastly, because of all these things, I think you see this all throughout the psalm as well, and that is fervent praise. All of these things come together, and he's just constantly, almost every line you could say is fervent praise, either to God himself, about God's word, or some kind of, of aspect of living it out and living that praise. Um, for sake of time, I want to show us just a couple of verses here. Go to verse 62. 62 is, is wonderful. At midnight, I rise to praise you. Now, how many of us did that last night? Don't raise your hands. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. He also talks about his praise being a free will offering. But look also, go over to 164. 164. He says, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven times a day. So at midnight, and then he also talks, there's other verses as well, but I think these two encapsulate the idea the best. At midnight, I do this, but also seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules, meaning the word seven there most typically would say that pretty much any time of day, I praise you for what? Your righteous rules. And then last stanza, he says in verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. And verse 7, 175, maybe one of the best ways to say this, let my soul live and praise you. Think about that. He wants... He's asking for life so that what? He might praise. He wants to live so that he can praise God more. Not suck everything that he can get out of life, but understanding that his life is designed to praise his creator, specifically the one who authors his word. Let my soul live and praise you. And in this very last request, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Interesting, huh? How he ends right, and you know this is all thought through from A to Z, if you could say it that way. But he ends with a humble request of saying, I love your word, but at the same time, God, keep me. Keep me there. And let me not stray, because I have strayed. And he wants desperately to live out God's word. I think here's a last note of application, just very practical for us this morning. Would you take a minute and just think, what is the verse, the one verse, or the theme that has stood out to me? And if you would be so willing, grab a pencil and circle that verse. And beyond that, would you consider committing that to memory? We don't talk about memory a whole lot. 
Um, it's kind of like one of those things like fasting, prayer, money, memory. <laughs> it's interesting how this psalmist you can see throughout is just clearly committed to taking up God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. And think about what would we do if we didn't have a copy of God's word? What, what would I have to do if I didn't have the ESV app on my phone and I couldn't just go boop, 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 search? How, how, would I, how would I treat God's word? Um, and more importantly, does, is, does God's word hang out in my heart? Is it stuck to my heart so that I can hold God's truth and be ready to apply? And here's our conclusion. Here's our walk away this morning. Will you go to verse 129 this morning? And we're going to sing about this as we end. Verse 129. I think this, this is one of those verses that captures a big, one of the biggest themes in the whole psalm. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. That's the idea. I value them this much, so then in turn, I do it. I keep it. That's really the heartbeat of this psalm, is that I love God's word so that I live God's word. That's the walk away this morning. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Let's pray together. Father, there's, there's far more here than we can study and get our heads around in one morning. And that's a good thing, Father. Lord, your, your word is so broad and expansive and reaches to every corner of the earth. Everything that we can see, it reaches. Everything that we can't see, it reaches. Lord, it goes from age to age. It's eternal. It just, it's not just good at the time of its writing. It's good for all times. It's good before we existed. It's good now, and it's, it'll be good when we're gone as we've read this morning in 1 Peter, that the flower fades. And Lord, we know uh, we're like flowers. We fade. We're like grass. We come and go. But your word is forever fixed in the heavens. God, because of that, because of the surety of your word, I do pray that our hearts would be fascinated by, would be fixed on, would see it as more valuable than the most precious things of life this morning. God, I pray that it wouldn't just be something we memorize, but it's something we memorize in order to live and please you and indeed gain life from. Father, we, we do value your word. Help us to live it and value it more and to keep it with, keep it with us at all times. We pray these in Christ's name. Amen.